Hello, welcome to Rising with the Tide. My name is Skander, and I'm joined, as always, by Jamie Walls, oh. my uh, goblin in charge. Um, and this is. <laughs> We should make a compilation much longer. <laughs> we should make a compilation of all the names I've called you, uh, like the passively aggressive names I've called you over the the episodes. This is episode twenty seven. It feels great getting back in the groove. You know, they it's a bit hectic to do one after the other, but it also feels nice to actually kind of uh, turn the engine back on for the podcast and get some 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 of these interviews and yesterday we just interviewed Niklas Burs uh, a climate scientist um, and that episode should normally be out when you listen to this one and really really highly recommend that you go listen to that because it was super interesting Niklas is at the top of his field in terms of uh, data and climate uh, science analysis and yeah Jamie anything to to say for today to our listeners yeah yeah I'm I'm, I'm excited it's, it's another another um topic that's of particular interest to me uh the uh the organization and sort of motivations of a of a political movement i'm always a fan of looking into those so yeah 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 and uh, before i forget a huge thank you to our patreon subscribers um pablo george nadia chadia uh thank you so much guys for your support because of you we can actually make this project self-funded and keep it going um it means a lot so thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you haven't yet and you'd like to subscribe, you can go to patreon.com slash rising with the tide and join for anywhere from, I think, two euros a month to, uh, I don't know what the highest scale is, but you can get some uh, <laughs> some freebies, let's call them, <laughs> like early episodes and things like that or mentions. Um, but yeah, without further ado, uh, we'd like to bring in our today's guest, uh, she's a professor in politics at the Department of Politics, Language and International Studies at the University of Bath. She was previously at the VUB Utrecht and Victoria University of Wellington, a uh, scholar at the University of California, Berkeley, and, and has done a lot of other things, uh, a lot of impressive positions, active in many research topics uh, throughout and projects throughout Europe. Uh, professor Hilde Coffey, thank you for joining Welcome. us. Hi. How are you today? Good, thank you. Good. So... I guess we start usually with this, but would you like to maybe uh, give a kind of uh, more in-depth introduction of yourself to our, to our listeners? Because I don't know if I did you completely justice with that. Hi. So hi, everyone. I'm uh, Hilde Coffey, as um, Skander said, uh, affiliated with the University of Bath as professor in politics. Uh, my main research interests include public opinion and voting behavior. And I've done my PhD in the meantime, many, many years ago on uh, the radical right in Belgium, comparing why it, why it was successful in uh, Flanders, but not as much in, uh, in Bologna. And I've continued studying the radical right populist parties since uh, then, but starting to focus more and more on uh, gender 
and looking at it from a gender perspective and why women are more or less likely to vote for radical right populist parties. And recently also looking at uh, the representation of women in these uh, parties, because we often see them as what we say, Männerparteien, so really where women are underrepresented both as voters, but also within parties. So trying to understand why that is the case and but why there are also differences between the parties why women are better represented in certain parties, radical right populist parties, than compared with uh, with others. Yeah, that's uh, honestly, this sounds super interesting. Um, for for some of our listeners, you know, let's not kid ourselves, our base of listeners, uh, let's say it was a little bit left of center. Um, they might be wondering why someone would be so interested in studying uh, something like the radical right. What what motivated you to to kind of dedicate a portion of your life to studying these people? Yeah, well, I think um, it started out from a curiosity. Um, so I grew up in Belgium and in Flanders, and it was really where it starting from the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 90s, where at that time Vlaams Block, in the meantime Vlaams Belang, uh, became really successful. And how you know it, you saw change in the discourse, etc., in um, in like in media, etc., etc., and how that you know that party got a lot of attention. Um, and so then, whereas in the other part of Belgium, you didn't see it that much. I said so. That's really where the curiosity uh, started, and where also the you know the topic from my PhD, which I um, finished and uh, defended in two thousand four. Um, started from, whereas, and at the same time, you know, from Flanders, we also often looked at the Netherlands, where in the 1990s, there was far le less of the radical rights and anti-migration mm -hmm. discourse, etc. Whereas then afterwards, you know, we also saw the, with the arrival of etc. We also saw how the radical right populist parties also became successful in the Netherlands. So you also saw those saw these uh, regional and uh, country level differences, which I thought were really uh, fascinating. And that's also where in Flanders we were then at that time also looking at the, often at the Netherlands because we often you know in Flanders people often look at the Netherlands more easily than to Wallonia, and uh, because of the language. Um, similarity of course and then we you know we were thinking oh the, the Dutch look at them immigration um, integration etc is going well there's no radical right populist party but then you saw that arrival of Pim Fortuyn and you saw how radical right populism also increased there and became successful and that's what really also one of the the arguments that I presented that it has a lot to do with the radical right parties themselves and their leadership um, if it's not that the Dutch are, in the case of Belgium, that the Walloon are much more tolerant towards immigrants, it's really also about having that party and having a good leader, etc. Why people are attracted and why people vote for these parties. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I really hope if you're listening to us to this episode, then you've also potentially, and if this interests you uh, in particular, then. There is uh, the series that we've started on the Flemish far right and the, the history of the Flemish far right, um, where we kind of so far, I think we'll be releasing episode three soon, which uh, covers post-World War II to early 1990s. But yeah, 
um, that is uh, precisely also, I think, something that's interested me personally is, is like, how did we get here? <laughs> how did we get to a point where in Belgium, like, for example, the, you know, the, the Vlaams Block became the Vlaams Belang, like rebranded into this and, and is really descended from actual like World War II Nazis as well, like people mm. who did participate and collaborated with the Nazis. And I find it fascinating, actually, you're like reading your, your papers. I think I contacted you originally for the series um, because of your PhD work, I think. And I find it fascinating now reading your newer research on uh, gender and the far right, how the idea that women in radical right feels very, almost like cognitive dissonance in a sense, like it just feels like it shouldn't be in a sense, right? Um, I, I guess it's, <laughs> I guess it's because, well, like you said, they resemble usually manner uh, partein. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit about this word and kind of what it means? Yeah, so it means that, you know, that men are overrepresented in those societies, as I said, among voters, among leaders, etc. Now, one of the explanation has all or the explanations has been that they also um, have a tra very traditional view about women. And that that is also why women are not attracted by those radical right populist societies. But we do see that that has definitely been changing and it's often linked now to Islam and the anti-migration discourse or the anti-Islam mostly discourse of many radical right populist parties, how they say, oh, look at the Islam, they don't have gender uh, equality and look, women had to wear head scars, etc. Whereas look at us, Western European societies, we are gender equal and uh, women can do whatever they want. So we've seen that move. So as an explanation of why women are less likely to vote for radical right populist parties, it's actually not as strong as, a, as an explanation because mm -hmm. there are, like for example, Marine Le Pen is also an example of a, of a radical right populist leader who believes that you know women can take economic responsibility, can go out and work, can have a traditional mm -hmm. modern role as a woman in society. Um, so as an explanation, that traditional gender role or that traditional role for women doesn't hold that strong. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, not, I'm not overly familiar with the, the specific cases you're looking at, but it, it seems to be a similar movement to how right-wing parties may, maybe in the UK kind of uh, create narratives that they are serving for instance working class interests and that's how they they kind of get the support of those groups and it's really interesting how you're describing this potential cultural shift of, of women's allegiance to these radical right parties and I guess maybe just going a little bit more into that so, so like what what techniques or what narratives are being put forward in order to you know get the support of women or especially one that really is you know to, to us subordinating them how how does it sort of overcome that or you know turn that on its head pretending it's a good thing it's I wonder how yeah I wonder what approaches are done yeah I mean I you know why the people vote for a particular party it's not always I mean we always think about it as, as a in a rational way about why you know, people would vote, but of course there's a lot of uh, other issues um, involved and there's always different uh, aspects why women are, for that matter, also men, because there's also many group men who, if you might think about it um, rationally, you would say, ah, oh, you would 
you know, it would be better rationally or from a rational point of view to support a different party if you are in that social position. Um, but what you see, you know, as I just mentioned, that trend in, uh, in attitudes towards women's interests, but then, of course, women's interests, we always think about, uh, for example, abortion rights, etc. And then we often look at it from a feminist point of view. So I always find that also myself challenging when I think about it, why women are attracted by certain parties, mm -hmm. that if we are, for example, interested in women's interests, and if we think, uh, you know, women may not vote for radical right populist parties because they have this traditional point of view, um, even though some have changes now, but, but not definitely not all of them. But some women, be, I mean, there are conservative women. Women are also not a homogeneous group. There's very diverse types of women. Because um, one of the issues that we are looking at now in the current project is also to what extent those radical right populist parties do pay attention to women's interests and when do they increase their, it's their focus on those? We don't look in particular at position, but just in general at the attention that they pay to it. And what we, for example, see so far, it's, uh, I mean, we are still working on it, uh, but what we see a strong effect of electoral loss that when parties are losing, they start to introduce more of those women's issues. Yeah. So also showing, mm -hmm that apparently they are also rational actors. And when they see, oh, we are losing, we need to broaden our issues, hopefully to try to attract other voters. And in this case, it may be particularly to try to attract women voters because they know that they are underrepresented. Mm -hmm. And assuming that when introducing women's issues, irrespective of you know, the position that they take, that they may attract women voters. I've gone through some of your papers, but one that I, I really enjoyed was uh, Gender and the Radical Right from, from 2018. And I guess, would it be correct to say that your research maybe this doesn't look as much as what motivates people, uh, women to vote for the radical right, but more why they are absent from the radical right? Would that be correct? At least a paper like that? Yeah. Yeah. And and I, f I found like one of the things I found really interesting uh, in that is this concept uh, that you, I think you give to uh, Carol Gilligan, a scholar, um, Carol Gilligan, that considers that men have to have, uh, men, sorry, don't have to have, men have more of an attitude that tends towards um, the strictness of law and a focus on individual responsibility, whereas women focus apparently more on things like collective solutions or tend to hold less strict law and order attitudes than men. Um, do you subscribe to that kind of concept? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely also one of the main explanations, also um, authoritarian attitudes, that that has also been related to radical right populist parties and the argument that we see that tend to see that with less uh, among among women compared with, uh, with men. At the same time, um, we have, been having most scholars it's not been easy to try to explain the gender gap in radical right populist mm -hmm. support 
Um, so relying on survey uh, data, it's been much easier to um, explain the gender gap in traditional left-right voting than in radical right populist voting. For example, another major explanation has always been that men were more likely to be losers of modernization, as they call it, so much more likely to suffer from uh, globalization, etc., compared with, uh, with women. And there's also more likely to have negative attitudes towards immigrants uh, compared with women. But there's generally not a lot of empirical support using survey data to, to that idea. So in fact, it has been challenging to explain the gender gap in, um, in radical right uh, populist voting. And in one of my research, I um, tried to also move beyond the gender measure of self-identification as men, as women, but also looking at the gendered personalities and including mm. uh, feminine and masculine uh, traits. So with the feminine being, you know, warm and gentle, whereas masculine is more about being um, ambitious and hard and strong. And we see that even controlling for these characteristics, women are still less likely <laughs> To vote for the radical right populist parties mm -hmm. than men, so it's really. It's so we know the we know the the effect, but we don't know the cause exactly. Then. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's very. It's been challenging using survey data to try to explain why women are in the end less likely. I mean, there's many also who say, for example, that they are less likely to vote for outsiders. Um, and that it's also that outsider image and uh, that extreme image of being extreme. The church was even mentioned as a possible idea, I remember, in your paper, as uh, yeah. women participating more in church and the church being a force against a lot of radical right uh, principles, at least in Europe. <laughs> Let's yeah, not kid yeah. ourselves, it's not the case everywhere. No, and I, a lot of, I think it's also Nona Meyer has also focused on it, looking at France, that a lot has changed also in how the church is um, taking position towards radical right populist parties, towards migration, etc. Um, so all those relationships are not as straightforward as we might sometimes mm -hmm. think making it indeed challenging to and then as i still as i mentioned before we always and i mean i do it also in my research we often talk about women and men but there's many men and types of men and there's many types of women both are not homogeneous groups um so that also i think is always important to keep in mind um that you know there's many different types of women and that there's differences in in how it can be explained also the gender gap or what is called the gender gap that you see that what explains men's likelihood for voting for the radical right populist parties does not always explain women's likelihood of voting for radical right populist parties for example, in one of my uh, chapters, I show how it was um, in an edited volume by Jens Rietgen, where and it was the book is on uh, class and radical right populist um, voting. And in the chapter, I do show how class is related to radical right populist voting for men, but not for women, or at least not mm. as strong. Um, so what explains radical right voting for men may not explain radical right populist voting for women. Yeah, and and I guess often there's just factors that you can't really compare. Like, I mean, I, I just off the top of my head, I, I can think of a few far right parties, for example, that have had 
things like scandals, which uh, I'm you know I'm sure impact uh, women or men uh, like their perception differently of mm -hmm. of the scandals, for example. And so, yeah, it it seems quite difficult. But you mentioned one of your papers. Uh, one of the the quotes I, I pulled out of it was um, that despite the available empirical studies focusing on gender and radical right voting, an encompassing theory for the radical right gender gap is still missing. Mm -hmm. um, so this is kind of what we've been turning around: this idea of an encompassing theory. And what would that actually look like? An encompassing theory. And do you think it's is it within grasp of this under this more complete understanding? I mean, I definitely think it's getting more complete because there's, you know, the research on radical right populist parties and voting for such parties has definitely been growing, including also the research on gender and radical right populist um, voting. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll get there. But, um, and I'm also not saying that we don't understand anything yet, but it's not as straightforward or not as easy as, for example, why women are more likely to vote left-leaning than, uh, than right-leaning compared with men. I think for the radical right, it's more challenging. Of course, there is also a lot of diversity among the radical right populist parties themselves. So why women vote or do not vote for a particular uh, radical rights populist party maybe differ between the types of radical right populist parties. And one explanation may also be because with the growth now of um, also women leaders, uh, that we see a growth of uh, the number of women or radical right populist parties were led by uh, women. Um, that may also become an explanation of why so far empirical research hasn't shown a strong effect, but it could be a potential explanation of why there's um, uh, gaps are not in, in particular parties. I wonder if through your research, um, what you found the significance of certain types and certain qualities of political education is in these regions, um, particularly with regards, so I don't know if there's a relationship between political literacy and the sort of prevalence of these radical right movements or and also what is the relationship between um, political education and uh, perceptions towards women and, you know, uh, actual effective gender equality. Hmm. So I haven't studied political education in particular, but what we do know is that education in general matters for radical hmm. right populist parties with higher educated people being in general, not specifically for men or women, but in general being less likely to support radical rights, uh, populist parties. So we definitely see that link. How it relates to gender specifically, um, I, I, don't, I don't know whether there is a different pattern. I, would I wouldn't see a reason why it would matter differently for women or for uh, men, but it does show that, um, you know, having um, some political knowledge or some even some general knowledge is um, is an important uh, factor, and I think especially you know with fake news and all the all the news that we get about um, different issues, also through social media, this becomes also more and more important. I think within society. I was uh, wondering myself. Um... If there's any examples that you've seen around Europe, because you've, for example, remember one of your papers studied like 12 different types of uh, 12 different countries, I think, 
Um, so you, you have experience like mo moving your research around a little bit, it seems. Uh, is there any, do you have any examples of uh, places that have seen this gendered radical right voting behavior, or more specifically women, I guess, changed really drastically uh, one way or the other over a short period of time? Um, because what, what I'm getting at, I guess, is are there any cases of this sort of thing happening on a very short time span that we could potentially pull lessons out of um, either as, you know, a warning or as a kind of solution to this kind of quite radical voting behavior? Yeah. So then it's really about, um, you know, the extent to which there is a gender gap and how they have um, changed over over time. And I'm just opening a document now, um, which is a one in which we look at a lot of uh, overtime between different uh, parties in um, in Europe from 1980 till um, the 2010 and uh, where we do look at the different parties and the radical right populist parties and how we see that, um, that gender gap and the proportion of women in um, radical right populist uh, parties. And you do see a lot of differences between parties in the extent to which there is an, um, a gender gap. You do also see changes over um, time um, and you do definitely see that the gender gap is largest for the radical right populist uh, parties. So, but an example of where it changes that drastically is, um, which I can't give uh, out of my head now, my head now, but what you do see is how parties try to attract the women voters. And for mm -hmm. example, what we uh, thought was an interesting case and what we discuss, a case that we discuss also in a paper that is currently on the review is about um, the Partij voor de Vrijheid, which is Party of Freedom of Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, how he talks about Geert's angels in the 2017 campaign where he is at the top of the list and then he's uh, followed by two women and you really had this picture in the telegraph which is one of the most popular um, newspapers in the netherlands showing his wilders and those two women next to him um so really you know showing those women and then trying to make his party attractive also to women voters i wonder if you've um come across uh, any evidence to suggest that the strength of these radical right movements and perhaps their capacity to appeal to female voters is sort of strengthened by the absence of perhaps opposing uh, uh, organized, you know, discourse or organized groups of, for instance, feminist groups. Yeah. And, you know, that those kinds of interactions. Yeah, because in general, I think you see less of those, uh, because in many parties you have women groups, I think they are less common in radical right populist parties, also because they are often led by quite uh, strong leaders, like the case of Geert Wilders, who is running the party mostly on his own. Um, so there's less influence of women's uh, movements and women's organizations in, uh, in general. Um, and again, as I think also, as I mentioned before, not all women are in favor of those feminist movements. So there's also conservative women who will be supportive of uh, parties who support conservative ideas towards women's role. Yeah. 
And I think it's always important to keep that on in mind that we have that diversity among women. Yeah. I mean, for the same matter as women vote for not radical right, but just conservative parties. Yeah, I guess it's, it is a danger to kind of rob women of their agency in the sense if we keep kind of thinking that they are the ones being influenced and not actually making their own uh, decisions yeah. as to those things. Um, but it, but in turn, I do think that though, like, you know, let's not let's not uh, convince ourselves otherwise, like we, we are influential, uh, <laughs> that's a word, <laughs> beings in general. Um, have you potentially looked at the idea of uh, agreeability um, in, in your research? Because I think that's kind of a, I guess, a buzzword of sorts that's come up in recent years uh, when people discuss the the kind of traditional gender roles. I hear a lot of people um, in academia or outside of it mentioning agreeability as like a traditional um a traditional characteristic or that like women should strive for in the role of the woman um do you think that this potentially has an effect on on like voting behavior um especially for example if they themselves strive to fit in that role mm-hmm. and let's say they are their partner is a radical of the radical right like this could have impacts Yeah, so then it's really about, I mean, I think it's two things. It's about that, um, in general, that feminine characteristics of wanting to be agreeable and kind and friendly, etc. And that's what I showed in research, also including gendered personality traits, where actually those feminine characteristics don't matter that much. It's really about um, the masculine and the masculine uh, characteristic that strongly affect the likelihood of voting radical right um, populist uh, parties and even controlling for those characteristics. As I mentioned before, we still see that gender gap with women being less likely to support radical right populist parties. But on that other matter of you know trying to want to make your husband or your partner happy as a woman and trying to, I mean, we do know that partners influence one another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, sorry, just just want to quickly say, like, obviously, the the other way around can, of course, happen as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Though traditionally, I mean, we I think we can recognize that it has been more that women follow men than the other way uh, around, at least you know, traditionally. Um, but so that's definitely the case. So, so there may definitely be a case of. Um, you know, partners influencing one another. And that's the case for all parties. And I'm sure that that'll also be the case for radical right populist parties. Mm-hmm. Well, in, uh, in your paper, you mentioned like this idea of women uh, voting kind of more towards uh, solutions that are in terms of that had, that had links to solidarity or, or kind of mm-hmm. the family or that sort of, uh, that were less individualistic. Have you seen in your research this idea that the far right kind of is able to manipulate in a sense their own ideas and policies into being seemingly like ideas or policies of solidarity, but just with the Mm in-group or, or, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Like um, uh, making it seem like what they are doing is actually solidarity or, or um, uh, kind of taking care of the family and and kind of Mm -hmm. co-opting these ideas. I mean, that's, I think, something that is very common among the radical right, uh, public parties in general, how they frame everything as 
you know, thing, you know, we are here for the common people, etc. but you need to belong to those common people mm-hmm. um, and not be one of the, the outsider or be an immigrant or a refugee or, in, uh, or belonging to a different, or and an especially Muslim uh, immigrant. So I think that's how they often frame their, uh, their issues. And that's how really that nationalism and how you also see that now. So what I was referring to before about how, um, you know, the Islam is now framed as, oh, they are not gender equal, whereas we are, and look at our mm-hmm. Western industry, Western modern societies, and that's been referred to as what is called femo-nationalism. So really that nationalism, but linking it to those ideas. Um, sorry, sorry, can I just, is it, fe- f- can you please repeat the term? nationalism Emo nationalism. Okay, well, <laughs> it's a new new word to the dictionary. <laughs> yeah, and um, so that's how it's been labeled, and so really showing how you have that feminism and that nationalism. But it's um, but research also does show. Um, I know from one study on Sweden, and I know it was co-authors, including and towns, how they look at um, the Swedish Democrats and how you see that pattern. But you see also when it's not about nationalism, they don't seem to highlight that gender equality that much. So it's really when it works for, you know, linking it to their nationalist uh, attitudes and nationalist positions. But it's not that they are so supportive of gender equality on other topics or in general. Mm -hmm. In terms of the actual process of your research, it seems like it would be quite difficult when trying to um, assess the effects of these radical right-wing movements. It, it, it seems like it would be difficult to distinguish uh, between the effect that the movement is not necessarily majorly influencing, but mobilizing pre-existing right-wing and conservative mm-hmm. uh, female voters um, to, you know, distinguishing that to actually actively influencing and changing minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's been research looking at also how, you know, the presence of those radical right populist parties does change the discourse in society, mm. something that um, people might not have dared to speak out loud before, if a party and a political party really uses the discourse, it gets attention in the media, etc. how that may uh, influence discourse in, in society, and also how their presence, even when not um, represented in parliament, or even when not part of the government, how the policies sometimes do get introduced because of other parties taking over ideas and thinking, yeah. especially when they become more successful and that they are worried other more mainstream parties to lose voters and that they take over. Um, I mean, that not maybe specifically uh, policies, but just the general ideas of radical right populist parties, or at least turn their policies much more strict towards migration, towards refugees, yeah. etc. So is it like they're aware of this um, this growing uh, radical right voting base and they're all, they almost yet will tweak their policies to try and get some of those voters perhaps? Yeah, I think so. I think that some of the, the reactions of some, some parties is really, you know, they, we've lost a lot of parties. Some parties have lost a lot of voters to the radical right populist parties mm. and they may think one way to get them back is also to become more strict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been the challenge for many 
uh, also including social democratic parties, because they've lost many of their traditional um, lower uh, social class uh, voters, blue collar workers, to the radical right populist parties. And that I think has been challenging for social democratic parties in many uh, European countries. Um, also because they often combine those traditional blue collar workers with a more libertarian, yeah. new, young, higher economic class uh, people, which have who, a class that has very different opinions, especially towards cultural issues compared with the traditional uh, lower class blue collar workers. So I think it's been a challenge for many parties who've seen voters moving towards those radical right populist parties and what do you do to attract them and to get them back. And there is research showing that uh, parties do copy then, um, you know, policy ideas or general policies from radical right populist parties, there is some copying. And then the radical right populist parties kind of say, oh, look at us, everyone is copying us. Yeah, um, I and that that's very interesting. Yeah, like that how how other parties respond to these movements, um, mm -hmm. and this is this is just a very like this is just a very general idea. But I wonder how apart from that that actual changes in policy, how they change in discourse. Like, does their does their style change? Because when I when I think of a radical right. Uh, movement and the kind of discourse they're espousing I, I kind of I, I have the intuitive idea of a very sort of passionate emotional very strong uh, like like very charismatic leader and I, I, I would would is that kind of do you think that style influences the other parties and the, the general broader discourse as well yeah, I mean, it can be both, of course. It can be policies, ideas, but also the, the style that is indeed different in, uh, in many of those parties, um, where you do see a difference in also how they organize themselves. But it's really interesting. One of the examples um, that are the trends that I saw in Belgium is with the, in the 90s, the radical right populists became very successful here. And the parties thought, oh, you know, we need to change to attract voters and to attract party members, etc. And they started to democratize themselves and to give members more influence in decision-making, etc., where it's actually counter the radical right populist parties who are generally very centralized, um, organized with very little influence for party members. So you actually saw how they changed, but not hoping to attract women, um, voters in general and, uh, and people, but in the opposite direction as radical right populist parties did. Um, so you also see, I think, at least for the case of Belgium, you saw that trend more as a way to hope to attract people back to, to get people back to their own party, even though it was counter the trends or the pattern that you see in radical right populist parties. So I don't know whether that was really what people were waiting for, but it was one way to hope to get people back to their own parties. Mm -hmm. Have you done any, uh, oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, I would just wanted to say, whereas apparently uh, radical right populist parties are not, our voters are not um, 
particularly interested in having influence in many, at least based on the success that they have and the way that they are organized in many countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, uh, because patriarchal notions kind of uh, loom over a lot of radical right parties, um, I, I think that's, you know, can be argued as almost a, an established fact. Um, I, I really wonder what the experience of women, if you've done any research on this or if you know much of this, what the actual experience of either women voters or women representatives has been in these, um, you know, quite patriarchal parties, because I feel like it's one thing to to succumb kind of to, let's say, pressure or to uh, advertisement or, or even just to, you know, be convinced by ideas or, or convince yourself. But it's a whole other thing to actually uh, be in those circles and mm-hmm. to like, you know, try and, for example, uh, make a change or push for policies that you prefer, et cetera, in those spaces that are quite sometimes, uh, that have a lot of animosity towards women. So I, I wonder if you've done any kind of research on that front. Yes. So I think that's a question that relates to our current project in which we are looking at um um, the women's interests and to what extent they are um, represented by radical right populist parties. And so in most research on political parties in general, you do see that where there's more women, there's more focus or greater focus on women's interests. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just a, a general pattern that has been studied for parties and that is relative, seems relatively robust. Now we've studied this for the radical right populist parties and we don't see that pattern. Um, so you don't see more interest when there's more women or when there's a woman leader in, mm-hmm. the, in the radical right populist parties. So I think an interesting question then is, so we, when we were talking about the, the results, um, when we were talking about it with my co-authors, we were saying, does this now show that those women don't have an influence, that they can't change the focus on certain issues? But we can't conclude it because maybe those women are not interested in those women's issues yeah. and they agree with the positions of the parties um, so it's really always difficult to, to know because they, they can just agree and think, oh, we don't need to worry about, um, you know, whether women need abortion rights, etc. Um, so that's, uh, and so therefore, and that's something that I haven't done on the radical right, you would need qualitative interview data to really know how people are women think that they have an influence on um, radical right populist parties. I know of one research on the IFD in in Germany, and it does show that uh, compared with men, women MPs in the IFD are more likely to be first-time MPs. In the the far right, in the far right party of Germany. So they enter the IFD, um, you know, as a new Uh, MP, whereas for men, it's much more likely that they already have experience in other parties. So it does suggest that those women voters do really choose IFD and they enter politics because they're, you know, they have that option of IFD, whereas for men, it may be much more, you know, they left another party and now I'll move to IFD. So not as strong maybe that that particular party, or at least they have experience in other parties. So there are definitely 
you know, women who are attracted by radical right populist parties and whether, you know, then the question is indeed how much influence do they have and or how much influence do they want to have? Mm-hmm. Um, because maybe they, as I said, maybe they are happy with the, with the policies yeah i mean a traditional you could argue the traditional uh view of you know a a far-right view of women's role in the far-right party could be a very passive role that that i think it would be quite argued yeah yeah i still feel that cognitive dissonance that i i I felt that like reading about this i mean that just i don't know when i the the few uh, because obviously, you know, I don't hang around Nazis or anything, but the few far-right, uh, radical-right people that I've met in my life uh, hold such hostile attitudes towards women that are like, I don't know, they, they just rob them of agency a lot of the time. That mm-hmm. I guess it, it kind of feels a little bit um, self-destructive, almost. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like, kind of like, you know, with Trump in the US and you had these like uh, like these groups that were, you know, like minority groups, like such or such minority group for Trump. You know, like you had like uh, like uh, black people for blacks for Trump or Latinos for Trump. When those are some of the like people that would would have been and have been the most hurt by his policies, um, and it just kind of feels like this is yeah. self destructive behavior. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you also saw, because despite all the misogyny, you also saw those women for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you yeah. know, you saw it for uh, many different groups. Of course, they, you know, even though, I mean, people vote for, uh, for parties or persons for different reasons. And even if, those women may have recognized the misogyny. Maybe, maybe they, it doesn't matter for them, um, but they do like other policies that Trump is suggesting. Mm. Um, so there's many reasons why someone may vote for a person or a, for a party. Uh, so there's not only that one, and they may say, "Oh, you know that misogyny, and it wasn't probably misunderstood, etc." And then. Um, you know, still support that party or our person. Yeah. I, I get the feeling that's 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 a that's a common strategy of these parties who do, objectively speaking, harm the interests of particular groups. Mm-hmm. They they draw attention to these particular policies as, um, that are that are of interest. Um, I I also wonder. We we've been talking a lot about sort of why 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 particular women vote or, or support these groups and what where do they draw strength from. I wonder what are the sort of major weaknesses of these radical white groups? Um, you know, is it, is it just when, uh, an, uh, an, for instance, an immigration crisis kind of dies, dies down a bit and they have sort of less fuel to work on? Or is it maybe something a bit more positive when other parties find leverage against them? I, I wonder because they're not always just growing and growing in strength all the time. No, 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 that's definitely not the case. Um, I do think that uh, having a good organization and having a leader is an, and that holds for all parties, Mm. um, is an important explanation. And then also, of course, um, you know, whether there's another party that is very successful or not, addressing the same issues or attracting the same types of voters. Um, and I think those are very, because that was also when I started doing the research on the radical right and comparing 
the Flemish and uh, Walloon region, how the way that the party was organized, how structured it was, etc. that it was an important explanation. And then, and it might be a topic, and I'm sure that it has been discussed in the, um, in the series on, the, on Vlaams Belang and, and Vlaams Block. Um, the, you know, the, all that history of Flemish nationalism in Flanders, that has made that there was this structure and supports uh, within society for Vlaams Block or Vlaams Belang later. Um, so I do think that that helps and that's what you've, uh, I think seen in the Netherlands that that has been challenging there with some of the radical right populist movements there. Um, whereas the Vlaams Belang to continue talking about that case, you know, it's a well-organized party um, and how you see the difference there. Yeah, in the case of of uh, Vlaams Belang and Vlaams Block in Belgium, uh, yeah, what I I found really really interesting um, personally was that you can really see how like obviously every country is intensely different. Like the the way the far right has come up in France, in Spain, in the U.S. Um, is just completely different from each other. But in Belgium, what I thought was really interesting is that they seem to have completely in the like uh, you know before pre-World War II, but especially I think post-World War II, seem to have like co-opted the independence um discourse for for Flanders. Like the these far radical right peoples kind of just put position themselves as the only party that was really fighting for independence of Flanders. And then it seems like you know they then joined into the parties like the uh, Volksunie, the, the VU, which was then kind of grew into a bigger group and then kind of kicked them out slowly. Um, but what I then think happened personally from what I've read is that like after, you know, after a certain time, they kind of start switching between topics like of interest. And I think that's the great strength of Lams Belloc in the 1980s and, or 90s was like people like Philippe de Winter, who's uh, a huge personality in the far right in Belgium, and who managed to spot really that immigration was one of the biggest topics in Belgium for votes. And I mean, Vlaams Bloc as a new party didn't have huge numbers until I think they, they really attached themselves to that like uh, immigration front. Mm -hmm. um, but I can definitely see now kind of more how like for example the switch to islam as the you know black sheep um can then like help them also garner like female votes too or women's votes i mean um and uh, yeah it, it seems almost like uh predictable in a sense because you know we can kind of see what the scapegoat of the society is going to be and they kind of just predictably go to that but it's interesting, I think, in terms of today with Islam, for example, is one of the main scapegoats of our times, or at least the past 10 years uh, or more. Um, I think it's interesting that that allows them to open up to women due to a lot of, for example, Islamic countries, uh, quite harsh uh, kind of roles or rules for women. Have you seen much of that happen, like in terms of Islam, uh, like discourse against Islam and, and women's uh, perception? I mean, that's definitely a pattern that you see, especially more in uh, uh, Northern European uh, countries. 
where you see that anti-Islam link to move um, are linked to, I think it's, you know, what I just referred to also as uh, femo nationalism. You know, that's definitely a pattern that you see how they uh, start focusing them more and more on gender equality and link it to their anti-Islam uh, discourse. Yeah, um, I was wondering if you've done, if if the concepts of, you know, because we're, we're talking more and more about um, about breaking gender norms and things like that, you know, like the newer waves of feminism, let's say, have kind of put into question even just the idea of, of gender roles and whether there should be any or, or all of that. Do you, does this kind of factor into your, I guess, more recent research? Like, have you looked, at, do you kind of keep in mind a little bit the ideas of, for example, like non-binary uh, yeah. gender identities and things like that? Uh, I don't think that they already pay a lot of attention to it. And if they do, it's still, I mean, it's conservative, yeah. um, the positions that they do take. But it's not It's not that um, when they talk about gender, it's mostly about gender equality and, you know, work family issues, um, mm-hmm. not as much about non-binary or sexuality or, I mean, and even, you know, we see that increase and in how they link gender equality and women's interests to nationalism. It's definitely not their major issue yet. And it's definitely of secondary importance, even though we do see that change. Yeah, uh, I think that's pretty much all of the questions I have, I think. <laughs> Jamie? Uh, no, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm replete for now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, this was super interesting. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Hilda, like uh, it's it's a topic that I don't know. I guess I didn't really even think would be that um, would have that much depth to it because I guess it's uh, it's not like I said the cognitive dissonance. I just didn't think of of, uh, that many women in in radical right parties. Um, Maybe just to close off the discussion, um, I just want to ask what we talked about this encompassing um theory would that for you look like like looking a little bit to the future of the research in this um you know i'm just asking for kind of an educated guess uh from you because you are an expert in this um what would an encompassing theory look like would it look more like um do you think that there could just be kind of a factor that we're not like we're like a black swan like an unknown unknown or is it, do you think that the answer to this encompassing theory would be more like a really complex web of different issues? Yeah, I think it'll be a complex web. I don't think that there is one big all uh, explanation. I mean, again, also because there's so much diversity among women, there's so much a lot of diversity among the radical right populist parties themselves. We won't have that one big major explanation. I think it'll be mm-hmm. a complex web of very different explanations and different ones in different contexts. Yeah. Because it, it also, it's a, explaining voting behavior and gender gaps in voting behavior is also always very context dependent and Hungary isn't Sweden and isn't Italy. So, and the parties in Hungary are different from the parties in Sweden and, uh, and Italy. So there's so much diversity also. Mm-hmm. So no, no easy solution. Damn. I don't think so. Academia does it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, uh, Hilde Coffey. Yeah, thank you. Um, do you want to maybe uh, plug in anything that, you know, if people have questions, they, if they can, if you'd like them to be able to reach you somewhere or that sort of thing? 
Yeah, sure. No, it was a pleasure uh, doing and I hope everyone will uh, enjoy listening to it or enjoyed listening to it when they reach this end. Um, and sure, if you want to reach, uh, reach out, um, you can find my details on the website of the University of Bath. It's age.c.coffer at bath.ac.uk. Do feel free to send an email. Great. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great. Het heeft geen zin dat ik ontken, meester vraag.